0: When we took that deep dive in Colossians 3 5, I mentioned to you there were uh, um, some words in the Greek New Testament that I wanted to show you. And I'm not going to go back and do 3 5 again, but there was one especially um, in verse 5. Uh, if you look in your Bible there, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, then remember we spent time on those. Four words and talked a little bit about idolatry as well. But that second word, uncleanness, it is uh, the Greek word uh, akatharsis, which is cathartic, right? So uh, cathartic is like cleansing, basically. Um, so uh, you have a very literal rendering there uh, when you're looking at the word unclean, ah, at the beginning of a word is is negative. So it's Non-clean, um, and uh, anyway, I I felt bad because I forgot it last week, and I wanted to at least share one more word with you before we get started. Um, but we're going to look at verses six through eleven uh, this morning, Colossians three verses six through eleven, <clears throat> spending uh, some time on each individual word in uh, verse eight, and Lord willing, we'll get all the way through. Uh, Verse 11. So, I'll read the text. For which things sake, so those things that were mentioned in verse 5, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Amen. Okay, so starting with verse 6. Uh, where Paul is very obviously referring back to uh, the list from verse 5. It seems apparent that Paul places a special significance upon sexual sin because you saw last time as we spent on uh, verse 5 that um, the first two things mentioned there, fornication and uncleanness, are most often things that are related to sexual sins. And then the second two would be the desires, basically, that give way uh, to sexual sin. Uh, So... Paul is saying that there is a uh, a certain, what we might call a proclivity in God to bring his wrath on the children of disobedience because of sexual sins, right? So we don't say that that's the only reason that God's wrath comes, but he gives a very short list there in verse 5, and then he says in verse 6, for the sake of these things, the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. Um, remember, He addresses both the fruit and the root, right? The action and the desires. We are to mortify the fruit of evil desire and evil desire itself. This is important. We talked about it last time, how deep the redemption of Christ goes and by implication, how deep our mortification is meant to go because sin is not just uh, out there. It's not just an action you commit with your body and it's not just something you see other people doing. Sin is... Within. And the Christian is called to get to work on what is both external and internal. Separating the two can create a, a dilapidated view of sin and will likely lead to an inability to properly grapple uh, with our own sin. All right. Now, looking at verse uh, seven, just the last little phrase there, uh, because you, maybe you're tempted when we read verse seven when he says, uh, you know, you walked in these things sometime and you lived in them, uh, that we we kind of think of that as people, right? He's not saying like he does in Ephesians, among whom you once lived. He's saying here that sin was basically the place in which they lived, right? Notice how he says it at the end of verse 7, when you lived in them, right? It's emphasis on in them. This is talking, again, about sin, not people. And we can look at our first quote there on your handout that I gave you. Um, I don't have any more handouts. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, there you go. The Lord provided. So when you lived in them. This is uh, John Gill. Um, So he gives an explanation. It means when you lived in sins or were dead in them. For to be dead in sin and to live in sin is the same thing. Living in sin is the death of sin. To live in sin is to live after the flesh, after the dictates of corrupt nature, to live a sinful course of life. It is for a man to give up himself to sin, be wholly bent upon it, take delight in it, and make it his work and business. This had been the case of these believers in Colossae, but now they were dead to sin, and it became them to live no longer therein, but to mortify it by denying it and abstaining from it and living soberly, righteously, and godly. Okay, So we need to understand our redemption in Christ in that way, that we have not just been freed from the penalty of sin, though that's part of it, Christ forgives us of our sins, but we are also freed from the power of sin, the domain of darkness, all right? We are no longer to live therein. And that living, again, is not just external. It's not just our actions. It's internal as well, because the redemption of Christ doesn't just bring us to a new place physically. In some ways, it doesn't yet bring us to a new place physically, but it does bring us to a new place spiritually. We're brought uh, through the redemption of Christ to... Uh, live in the freedom of righteousness. But verse 8, right, he, he makes it clear, I think, that Christians are called to a higher calling because let's be honest. Verse 5, um, unless you're a very corrupt, pagan, heathen, right? You could probably remember a time a few years ago and some of you who are older in your generation growing up that most people were not publicly known for fornication and uncleanness, right? It doesn't take a whole lot to not be that kind of person, right? And I think that's kind of what Paul is getting at when he gets to verse 8, and he says, but now also, right, not just those things that are, you know, sort of not as hard to refrain from, Right? though there are super corrupt people who uh, that is difficult for them to refrain from externally, and we live in an age where it's being praised externally. But verse 8 makes it clear that Christians are called to an even higher calling, not just to put off or put to death what verse 5 calls on, but to also put off these other sins, even those sins which others might deem not as serious. Right? Um, Again, just look at the list. Verse 8. Anger. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Wrath. Malice. Blasphemy. Filthy communication out of your mouth, right? People can not do what's described in verse 5, but do what's described in verse 8, and they'll, you know, externally they'll be a decent person, tolerable to be around. But verse 8 is making it clear that Christians are called to an even higher calling. Not just to put off the worst sins, but to put off even those which others might not deem as serious. And these sins, in verse 8, are often, they, they, they often more easily entangle us as compared to verse 5. Right? Who doesn't get convicted when you hear scripture about your mouth and gossip and things like that and anger? All right. So here's our next quote. Uh, this is from Matthew Henry. He says, As we are to mortify inordinate appetites, verse 5, so we are to mortify inordinate passions. But now, you also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, for these are contrary to the design of the gospel, as well as grosser impurities. And though they are more spiritual wickedness, have not less malignity in them, All right? When he says spiritual there, he means like um, invisible, right? Like of the heart, basically, of the soul, not according to the Holy Spirit, right? So therefore, verse 5 deals with that which might be more obvious, although, again, we live in an age where even that which is more obvious isn't that which is discouraged. Paul doesn't just leave it there. He continues on reminding us of our upward or higher calling in Christ. We are called, remember, to imitate Christ, to be perfect as our Father in heaven, which is perfect. Who is perfect? All right, so let's look at these words in verse 8. Anger, all right. Um, You have to draw a distinction between sinful anger and righteous anger, right? Because the Bible makes it clear that God hates wickedness, Psalm 5, verse 4. That's anger, hatred, right? He has no pleasure in it, and we're called to be the same thing. Wickedness must make us angry, so that's not what's being condemned, but it is an uncontrolled anger, Very similar to the next word, wrath, but anger is something that is uh, directed at that which ought not to make us angry. It's a loss of patience, right? Those kind of things. There's righteous anger, again. A very similar verse to this where Paul, or passage to this, where Paul is dealing with the same idea is also in Ephesians, uh, verses uh, 26 to 31. But in verse 26, he says, Be angry and sin not. Right? What are we to be angry at? We're to be angry at sin. We're to be angry at our own sin, the sin in others, other people when they sin, but not allow it to lead us to sin. Right? Sin with anger. Um, another one, wrath, also mentioned in Ephesians 4, verse uh, 31, where Paul says, uh, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, etc., etc. So do you notice that within five verses of each other in Ephesians 4, uh, 426, Be angry and do not sin. Verse thirty-one: Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, right, be put away from you. So he's he's uh, drawing a distinction even there that close together. Uh, wrath, right? So what is wrath? It is related to anger, but it is arguably more intense, right? Where almost where you're getting on the verge of like vengeance. But the way the Bible is, you the way the Bible uses the word wrath is is interesting in in several places. Uh, Revelation 14.8 says, There followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So fornication drives you to this in Revelation 14.8. It drives you to a hatred of that which is good, and it's almost served to you from the enemy Um, as a drink of wine. Uh, So malice is the next word. I I have a a pretty formal definition for you. It's the quality or state of wickedness, baseness, depravity, wickedness, vice. It is the opposite of excellence or merit. So malice, the opposite of excellence. Um, You're probably familiar with the term malicious, right? That's the idea here. Um, So-and-so behaved with a malicious intent, right? They didn't just do something wrong. They did it in a certain way, right? In a certain type of hatred of excellence or merit, a certain type of promotion of depravity, wickedness, right? Uh, Then blasphemy. Blasphemy is... Uh, a special type of lying, right? Um, lying is basically saying an untruth or denying the truth. And blasphemy is more where you place something on a person or a thing that is not true. You see what I'm saying? Where like, you know, you're speaking and or someone asks you a question and you answer yes when you should have answered no no one should have answered yes. You're lying in some, a passive lie. But blasphemy is more active, where you're taking error and placing it on something. Um, it's speech. This is a technical definition. Speech that denigrates or defames, reviling, denigration, disrespect, and some Bibles say slander. Right? Mm-hmm. Slander is connected to the Ninth Commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness, right? And so you think about what blasphemy is towards God, because we're told in the Gospels that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin, right? Um, and you see, the way I understand blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, since I've made the mistake of bringing it up, um, is <laughs> where Christ says in that passage, all, all uh, sins or whatever committed against the Son will be forgiven, but nothing committed against the Holy Spirit uh, no blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be forgiven. I think what Christ is doing is laying out the periods of, of history, basically. That the Old Testament was in some way the age of the Father. The New Testament, especially in the Gospels, is the age of the Son. People during that age will be forgiven for their... Um, they had the possibility of being forgiven for rejecting Christ. But once the Spirit comes, if you reject that whole work of God the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit fully presented, and you've rejected everything, you blaspheme against that, that would be what was unforgivable. Meaning, once God lays out everything, if you are still in rejection, that is unforgivable, which is a, a funky way of saying unbelief, right? But that's really what Jesus is, is getting at, in my in my uh, understanding. Um, but notice, though, in this text, the focus upon speech, right? Right? Um, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, right? Even as it relates to the new man, right? So he says in verse 9, lie not to one another seeing that you have put off the old man, right? So don't break the ninth commandment with one another because you have put off the old man. There's some special relationship to speaking the truth and speaking it in a certain way that comes with being brought into Christ. There's something about our redemption in Christ that profoundly impacts our lips and our heart behind our lips. The practices of the old man are evidently to lie to one another. Um, And I I think one way you could see this also is how people who uh, are not Christians, um, they live lies, their whole life is a lie. right? They reject God and His purposes and they concoct this whole thing to try to present as if things are okay. Right? They present in this way and the whole presentation is a lie. Right? So when we come to Christ, we're called to live in line with the truth and our presentation, as it were, is no longer a lie. It is a presentation in truth. It is and affirming of the truth of God's creation and his ordering of things. And uh, speaking about speech, let me get a little practical. Um, because j- just like there's an internal and external element, there's multi-layers of, of, about lying to one another or, or being worried about the way that we speak. Don't ever believe the lie of the enemy, that you're not doing wrong, if you don't do it to someone's face or to their person physically, right? So if you're angry about a person and it leads you to gossip or just to say something ungodly about them to another person or even just to harbor that in your heart, you have sinned against them even if they're not right in front of you, right? And Paul is leading us to see that this type of living is is not becoming of a Christian. We're to put off all of those things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of our mouth. Um, again, don't ever believe the lie that you're not doing wrong if you don't do anything to someone's face. Because think about it. You, you know the old expression about being two-faced, right? Where you really dislike somebody and you really show that you dislike them when you're not around them. But when you're around them, everything's fine. Right? I'm not saying to be a jerk to them in person. But you have to work on what you're not, or what you're doing whenever you're not around them, so that when you're around them, you don't have to lie, because that's what you're doing. You're participating in a lie. You're putting on a, a false face, as it were. Whereas you need to put on the face of truth at all times. Um, to lie to one another, verse nine, is to behave in a likeness or in a way of living that Christians have been redeemed from, is, Paul, is what Paul is saying. It is especially powerful to think about the effects that believers have in their interactions with those still on the roster of the children of disobedience. Because remember, he uses that phrase back in verse 6, right? Put these things off because God's wrath comes because of them on the children of disobedience. You're not children of disobedience, so live this way. And by the way, speak this way. Don't lie to one another. Words are powerful when you're, you're around people who are still among the children of disobedience. One of the things that we should be able to distinguish is the way that they talk from the way that we talk. Right? And our words are seasoned in a certain way. And I think this is part of the reason that when we're around non-Christians, we kind of feel that propelling of the spirit to say something about Christ. Right? You're around an unbeliever, you feel that pull. I, I need to find a way to invite this person to church. Right? It's that the Holy Spirit is trying to work on your speech. Right? And quite simply to take verse 9 and 10 at face value in their immediate context, to refuse to control your speech is a mark of living under the sway of the old man. To refuse to control your speech is actually a mark that you are living under the sway of the old man. Because the old man lies. The old man is filled with anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication. So if we live that way, we're living under the sway of the old man. But Paul says, you have put off the old man. And then verse 10, you've put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge. After the image of him that created him. And because he links it to knowledge, I believe we can rightly say that to refuse to contain your speech is to lack knowledge. To refuse to control your anger. To refuse to control wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. To refuse these things is to prove that you lack knowledge or worse, That you reject the knowledge that begins to come to you in Christ. This new man is actually being equated to, in verse 10, the image of God. We're being renewed after, or renewed in knowledge after the image, so with reference to the image of Him, God, that created Him, us. So we're being renewed in knowledge, so our union with Christ, we're being saved. Part of our renewal, that transformation, that catharsis, if you want to call it that, is knowledge coming to us after Christ's image or in the likeness of Christ so that we can be renewed into that image that God has made us. We don't often think of redemption in Christ as having the image of God restored to us, right? And we're going to talk about the image of God now for just a bit and use some quotes from our confession and some other things. But in salvation, you know how in the, the garden, right, Adam and Eve made the image of God, right? <clears throat> Sin, uh, great debate on this throughout uh, church history in what way it affects the image of God. Uh, but we lost... Not the whole image of God, but we lost the fullness of it. Right? We are no longer, outside of Christ, uh, rightly imaging God because of what sin does. Right? I'm not one of those people that believes the image of God is totally lost. There are people that believe that, very respectable people. I don't think that. I don't think our uh, standards lay that out either. Um, but this image of God is what we're being restored to. It doesn't mean we're being restored to how Adam and Eve were in the garden, right? We still have the potential to sin um, and we are still dealing with our sin. They just had the potential to sin and didn't have a sin nature yet when they were declared to be in the image of God. But let's talk about the image of God a little more. Your next quote there from Peter Martyr Vermigley on your handout, the image of God is the new man who understands the truth of God and desires its righteousness. So, Paul has taught us when he writes to the Colossians, put on the new nature or new man, which is being renewed in the knowledge of God after the image of his creator. Here we see that the knowledge of God is true and effectual, leading to an image of perfection. This is set forth more clearly in the letter to the Ephesians, put on the new nature, new man, created in God's likeness, in true righteousness and holiness. Our mind truly expresses God when it possesses the knowledge of God and is adorned with righteousness. For righteousness and the knowledge of divine things are nothing else than a sort of influx of the divine nature into our minds, the image of God. All right, so it's a a bit of a a far-out concept, um, thinking of the image of God, because... The image of God is not something you can touch in a technical sense unless you want to fully equate it with Christ and we will be able to touch him one day, I guess. Um, But uh, the image of God is that which is inherent in us that makes us like him, that makes us creatures who understand the law, that makes us creatures who uh, understand things naturally right? Because we're made in the image of God, we have his likeness. Uh, The words that we'll look at in just a moment are knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Now, we lost, or our knowledge, righteousness, and holiness were affected in the fall, but it wasn't totally lost. Um, Your next quote there is uh, from Davenant, Um, a little bit more complicated, but we'll try to work our way through it. He says, we allow that a certain image of God is found in the natural faculties of the mind. Right? So in our mind, what we have is related to the image of God because knowledge is based in the mind, which may be called the image of the natural creation. Nevertheless, we affirm, both in this passage and every other of Paul, that this image of God which may be called the image of the supernatural recreation, is not placed in the powers, faculties, or qualities themselves of the native soul, but in the rearrangement, sanctification, and confirmation of these according to the nature and will of God. Now, let me explain this because this is really cool. Um, What he's saying is that when we are recreated in Christ and our redemption begins... The the image of God in us has not been so erased that God comes in and uh, builds anew what has been lost, but that God comes in to rearrange things by sanctification and confirmation of that which is already inherent in us, right? And it's inherent in us because of the image of God. This is why people who are not Christians, can still do outwardly good things, right? You don't have to be a Christian to help an old lady across the street, right? Christians do them in faith, but we can still say that because of the image of God, because of that understanding, and this is the general way that these things would be explained in the past, that when we are receiving that knowledge, righteousness, and holiness afresh from God, that it's coming into a place where that, it's like a light bulb that's just kind of flickering, that's close to dying, that has been affected by sin. We are dead in sin because of this fall, but they're not totally wiped away. What God comes in and does is He... Rearranges, as it were. He sanctifies, he brings life and confirms these according to our already being made in his image. Now let's look at the confession for just a moment. Um, I've got a confession, a catechism, and another confession uh, there for you. So the first from Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 4, paragraph 2. It says, After God had made all the other creatures, he created man, male and female with reasonable and immortal souls, right? So Adam and Eve were made reasonable creatures, and they were made with immortal souls, meaning that uh, they, not that they didn't have a beginning, but that they would have no end, that man lives forever, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet... Under a possibility of transgressing, meaning it was possible for them to sin in this state that God made them, they were left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. So Adam and Eve uh, were made with the potential to sin, and they did. Doesn't mean that God made them to sin, but he made them with the freedom to choose. Now, beside this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Right? And then um, you're going to, I just gave you the catechism question so you can see the, the three words echoed here, short of Catechism 10. How did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Those are the three things that the fall affects, our knowledge, our righteousness, and our holiness and God made man with dominion over the creatures. Right, so when Paul uh, uses these words, like in verse 10, having put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him, after the image of God who created him, who created us, right? They're drawing directly from uh, passages like this and using these words of Scripture. And uh, notice here in Confession 6.2, it says, By this sin they fell from their original righteousness, and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. Notice they chose the word defiled, right? Not void, not destroyed, defiled, right? dirty, right? That the fall has made us defiled in all the parts and faculties of the soul and body. So when redemption comes, it's a renewing work, right? This is why Paul chooses this term, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So imagine salvation, as it were, as God pressing you back into the image into which you were meant to convey, right? I love the image of like a a cookie cutter, That God is pressing that upon us and that line, that final push. You know how you're like pushing through something thick and uh, you're just before the pan and then you finally hit the pan and it kind of makes that noise. That noise will finally have its full effect at uh, the resurrection from the dead whenever our souls are reunited to our bodies. But that is what redemption is. God is shaving off these things and He's renewing us um in verse 11 another turn of phrase uh that I think is important uh, verse 11 where he says where there is neither greek nor jew etc cetera, etc cetera. we'll get into those in just a second but do you ever read the bible and just kind of get stuck on a word i was reading this passage i got stuck on the word there where is the there of verse 11 all right so you put off the old man verse 9 you've put on the new man you're being renewed in knowledge after the image of him who created you where there is neither or greek nor jew where is there paul is doing a similar thing to what he did in verse 7 when he says you lived in them but here he's placing us in or in the location of renewal the new man is the location the place of renewal and knowledge after the image of him that created you. So God has brought you to this new place where there is neither Greek nor Jew, et cetera, et cetera. So let's talk about this list for just a moment. These, uh, Because this is very similar to Galatians, right? Um, in Galatians 3, verse um, hold on. <clears throat> 28, says there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. Right? so you have Jew and Greek here in verse 11 of Colossians 3. You have, uh, you don't have, you do have bond and free like you have in Galatians, but you don't have male or female. All right, so is Paul confused? Is he saying something different? I think he's addressing a different error. All right, he's addressing a different congregation, and evidently, these errors in Colossae did not relate to male and female in the way that they would have in Galatians. Because if you think about it, if you're dealing with circumcision like you are in Galatians, that immediately has an impact on male and female, right? Because females can't be circumcised. Right? So, um, But here, there's neither Greek nor Jew circumcision or uncircumcision. Those are inherently Old Testament things, Right? Old Testament categories, you might want to say, Old Covenant categories, and we talked about how Paul is dealing with, in chapter 2, people who were trying to go back to the Old Covenant and mix it with some other stuff, Uh, but here's a quote from Davenant on your handout. Uh, He's explaining this. He says, the former expressions, meaning the first four, they're Greek, Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, are particularly directed to the Jews, like I just said, but the present, meaning the remainder of the list, are directed at the Greeks who refined by the knowledge of philosophy and the liberal arts, despised other nations and considered them almost as brutes in comparison with themselves. The apostle, therefore, says this barbarism, barbarians, is no hindrance to those engrafted in Christ and truly renewed and sanctified. So if they're a barbarian Christian, they are a Christian. He mentions the Scythians, By name, since they were accounted the most fierce of all the barbarians. So a Scythian is another type of barbarian. And then he says (laughs) bond nor free, right? And he's going to address those uh, as well in uh, the end of chapter 3 when you get to the the vocations, uh, starting at verse 18. What he's doing there is saying that none of these things are either positive or negative in your relationship towards Christ. They don't affect you positively or negatively, is the point. Because remember, in the era of the Colossians, they were basically teaching that Christ was not really able to bring you into the place of God's salvation, that you needed these angels, you needed this special kind of worship, you needed this special kind of knowledge, and then with Christ and all those things, you could truly ascend, but here he's saying, in verse 11, that you are neither helped nor hurt by being a Greek, a Jew, a circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free. But Christ is all. None of those things matter in Christ, in the place where he is saying there, in verse 11. Right? In the place of the new man, none of those things remain, in a sense. They, well, they do, but not in the way he's talking about it. All right, and then a little bit more explanation on where there is neither Jew, uh, and this is from Calvin. Uh, he says, uh, he has added this intentionally that he may draw away the Colossians from the ceremonies, right, the things that were being added to their, their worship and their salvation. For the meaning of this statement is this, that Christian perfection, the perfection we have in Christ, does not stand in need of those outward observances, nay, that they are things that are altogether at variance with it. For under the distinction of circumcision and uncircumcision, of Jew and Greek, he includes by synecdoche all outward things. A synecdoche is basically when one thing is given a representative for the whole, right? A, a part for the whole, basically. All right. so he's saying by saying Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, he's not just telling these people in a way that wouldn't relate to anyone else, but that there is no external hindrance or help to coming to Christ through things external because this is a matter of the Spirit. The terms that follow, follow, barbarian, Scythian, bond-free, are added by way of amplification, meaning these don't matter either. Christ is all and in all, that is, Christ alone holds, as they say, the prow, the stern, The beginning and the end. Farther, by Christ, he means the spiritual righteousness of Christ, which puts an end to ceremonies as we have formerly seen. They are therefore superfluous in a state of true perfection. Nay more, they ought to have no place in as much as injustice would otherwise be done to Christ, as though it were necessary to call in those helps for making up his deficiencies." When he's talking about ceremonies, this has a a certain historical weight to it because they were dealing with uh, their disagreements with uh, the Roman Catholics on things to do with worship and whatnot. And he provides that caveat at the end because he he says in several places that um, certain ceremonies, and he's talking about particularly in worship, certain types of things are permitted in worship if they are necessary and do not call the the church or the Christian to think that there's a deficiency in Christ and therefore that's why it's needed, right? Um, So when he says that it puts an end to ceremonies, I have to see the whole context and see that he's saying that it puts an end to ceremonies, especially as it relates to the Old Testament ones, but also those that would try to add anything to Christ or say that we need this in order to really know that we are saved, Uh, Matthew Henry roots this in sanctification. Uh, This whole discussion, he says, There is now no difference arising from different country or different condition and circumstance of life. It is as much the duty of the one as of the other to be holy and as much the privilege of the one as of the other to receive from God the grace to be so. Christ came to take down all partition walls that all might stand on the same level before God, both in duty and privilege. And for this reason, because Christ is all in all. Christ is a Christian's all, his only Lord and Savior, and all his hope and happiness. And to those who are sanctified, one as well as another, and whatever they are in other respects, he is all in all, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he is all in all things to them and what he's getting at there if you're if you're missing what he's saying uh, is he's he's drawing attention to the fact that in the old testament the old covenant era jew and greek these categories did matter you had to become uh outwardly uh, someone who was a hebrew you had to be circumcised if you were a male in order to participate in the life of the people of god but now in christ that is not the case. In fact, if you use those things, they are a detriment to the faith, right? If you use them as additions or as qualifications in order to come to Christ because Christ is all and in all. And if you have Christ, you're in the place where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, etc. etc. All right? So, that went a lot faster than I thought it would, but uh Any questions or comments?
1: Um. What are the, uh, just the circumcision today as compared to the Old Testament? Okay, today we all know that that's an external thing that is not necessary, okay, as it was like you just said. Mm -hmm. What are some of the... Uh, just discuss a second uh, what are some of the obvious denominational differences today, other than circumcision, that are the outward things All right. of coming to Christ. Does anybody have, can we give some examples of the, I mean, I think I could, can, but I'm just saying, what uh, what else do, do people have uh, ideas? You know what I mean? What are yeah. the outward things that we see, denominations I mean, people like, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know if, if you want, you really can't consider uh, uh, Jeho- uh, uh, Mormons as being Christian, right. but there are obvious things there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm saying of you know, the Christian uh, churches that we see around, for the most part, around yeah, well, but if we can discuss that a second. It'd be obvious.
0: Well, yeah, so like historically, when when the reformers were combating or whatever the Roman Catholic Church, what what Rome would often do is they would turn up the pressure even more and say that these things that you're asking questions about, they're no longer custom, but they're required, right? Um, and Rome is so weak today and they have no backbone, and no credibility. They had very little credibility then. Um, but like, Calvin and them would be facing things where they couldn't go to uh, certain places to take the Lord's Supper unless they had a confession with the priest. Right? And obviously, they wouldn't have been doing that in light of the Reformation, but they're combating how these various Christians they're preaching to in different places and are reading their messages and they're trying to reform their churches and their nations in which they live. They're like, well, you can't do that because you must have a priest for X, Y, and Z. Right? Um, so they would write back to Calvin, like, you know, what do we do? So Calvin is, is kind of writing. He was very much, uh, he was pretty influential across the continent um, in his time. But an, an example today, who. Um, I would say that the Baptist insistence on the timing of baptism would fall into this category. Because it is nothing that can be discerned directly from Scripture. And they reject other Christian baptisms because they weren't performed at the same time as theirs. Because if I go to my... My in-laws or my parents' home church, my kids couldn't take communion.
1: Right. right.
0: I mean, Jude, but, you know, because he was baptized as an infant. It didn't take place at a certain time. Right. That would be kind of like a modern example. Um, others would be, uh, let me think. the The Lutheran Church, um, they, the conservative Lutheran Church, they require you to believe certain things about the Lord's Supper in order to receive the Lord's Supper with them. And when I say certain things, I mean like very explicit, over-the-top stuff that is like nothing you should ask a common Christian to affirm because they don't know anyway. It's these hindrances that people put in worship and in approaching God. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are probably the two that most come readily to mind. I mean another example could be like where if a pastor was like, even in a reformed church where he was super hard headed about the way that their worship service was performed and that he denied that it was a valid worship service unless they did things the way he wanted to do them right and that goes to you a know, pastor or elder anybody whatever opinion they may have about worship that well, it's invalid worship unless it's performed in this way that I prefer. Right. Those are
1: kind of kind of an example as well. I just, you know, Church of Christ, I think if you don't get uh, baptized by one of their elders, you aren't baptized. I, I think that's a, I don't know yeah. if that's hard and fast amongst all the churches of Christ. But
0: Well, I'm you even have in that. the Westminster Confession that baptism and the Lord's Supper only lawfully... Administrated by um, pastors.
1: Pastor? Yeah. Yeah, but of uh, their denomination specific. Right, right. Yeah.
0: Was, but um, I'm saying, though, there is yeah. a,
1: like, we don't want to say that, I know you're not saying this, but we don't want to say that, well, anybody can baptize. Anybody can start the Lord's Supper. So it's a matter of order that we need
0: to follow, and we do have a scriptural pattern, sort of. Uh, certain have traditions around it that are good. Baptism was especially given to the apostles. The Lord's Supper is different because custom arises around the Lord's Supper in a way it's distributed. All
1: that. Oh, I I know Pentecostal, uh, some charismatic Pentecostal, You're you're not worshiping, you're not speaking in tongues.
0: Yeah, well, you can't even know you're saved unless you spoke in tongues. So why wouldn't they fake it, right? Or I allow themselves to be given yeah. into this spiritual ecstasy that's not really the spirit in order to have assurance? I, mean, I
1: could, that that is a good example. That's, um, just, that's just some of that is just flat flat out, her, flat out heresy too. Yeah. I think, uh, especially, yeah. I see some of the denominations with the. I mean, it was popular a few years ago, but it probably, stu- that slang and the spirit, spirit stuff, no, it's, it's real. It really borders on, it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, it has nothing yeah. to do with the, the reality of Christ, you know, mm-hmm. being in the spirit and such. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, trying to draw back a little but, you know, Calvin has a very historical, uh, Let's we'll start looking for it, it has a certain context when he uses the word ceremony, but the point he's drawn to is the overall point in Colossians that anything you add to Christ does not add to Christ. It takes away from it it's because Christ is all in all. Right? And you don't need none of that other stuff when you're talking about salvation. There are matters of order and external things that are good and need to be observed, but you don't put those things forward as um, essential to salvation or essential to proper reception of of the sacrament. Um, You had some serious debates in in England about is it lawful to receive the sacrament kneeling or must you be seated at a table? To me, either one of them insisting that you must do it either way are both wrong. You may do it either way. But, anyway... Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had together uh, for the study of your word. We ask that uh, you would clean off our hearts and minds of all the defilement and all the additions that we permit to be added to Christ in our own thinking, in our own loves and affections. We pray as we draw near to worship you, that our eyes would be set on Christ who is the hope of glory. He is our Savior, our Redeemer, and He is all in all to us. We confess that our grasp of those things is very small, but we look forward to glory when Christ's fullness will be made known to us in a way that we have only barely tasted in this life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: I get